Good morning to you. Uh, I'm so excited to be able to share God's word with you today. Uh, I will confess, however, that when Jerry uh, had reached out to some of us, and we agreed on July 22nd, today is the date that I would um, have the opportunity to preach that worked. I then read this morning's scripture passage, and we're actually going to go all the way through the end of Luke 11 through verse 54. I read it, and my first thought was, I wonder if I could switch dates with somebody else, uh, because there's a lot that threw me. Uh, but thanks be to God for his faithfulness. I've learned that when things in the scripture seem odd or off-putting or make me uncomfortable, usually those are the places where God shows me the greatest beauty and depth and riches of his truth. Now, speaking of odd and off-putting and uncomfortable, could I just get a quick show of hands? Is there anybody that finds it a little bit odd, off-putting, or you're slightly uncomfortable that I'm standing back at this particular spot? But, yeah, I thought I'd probably have a few hands. I'm going to move up front because it's odd and uncomfortable for me to be speaking to you from back there as well. You don't have to have a background in architecture to understand that this room was designed a certain way. The sound system, as you could hear, was designed in a certain, certain way. Uh, this room was designed at one point uh, for a certain purpose. There was a desire to have a teaching space for a church body. And at some point, an architect designed it to be created with a focal point up here, a certain direction. And I just want you to hold that idea in mind about a designer designing with a desire and a focal point and a direction in mind. Hold on to that idea because we're going to come back to it again and again throughout this morning as we look at this passage. Uh, as I said, we're going to go from uh, verse 14, which, which Thomas just began reading, the first of four different scenes um, that wrap up this particular chapter of Luke and flow together. And I'm going to treat them in four different sections. Um, begins with a miracle. And Luke moves very quickly through this miracle, unlike some of the others where he spends more time describing it, sums it up in a single sentence, very quickly, just saying, uh, and Jesus was casting out a demon, and it was mute, and when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. What Luke does is to spend his time and space, really, on addressing uh, three different responses we see in the crowd to this miraculous exorcism or casting out of this demon. Three different categories. First of all, we're told that the crowds were amazed. There were certainly a lot of people who saw this miracle. And let me just note one thing. There's no question that it happened. Nobody, there's no response whatsoever that people are questioning the veracity or the reality of the miracle. It happened. Nobody's saying it's fake news. Nobody's saying it's a paid actor or something like that. It happened. And one category of people were simply amazed at what took place. The second category are those who doubt the authority and source of power behind the miracle. It's those who said he's doing this by Beelzebul, or uh, that's a nickname in their ancient language for Satan, the father of demons. The third category is what one commentator I read called the wait and see crowd. There was a group that said, kind of that, that was neat, but we're actually, we want a sign from heaven. What had just happened wasn't good enough for them. And so one miracle three very different sentences. And what this does in, in Luke's gospel, his letter to Theophilus, as he's telling all of what happened, this marks a shift 
Jesus has been doing ministry in Galilee, and we're slowly going to see him now starting to move toward Jerusalem. And as he begins to move toward Jerusalem, uh, we're also going to notice a shift in how people respond to him. And Luke is beginning to reveal a change uh, in the tide of public opinion that there's going to be more pushback, more opposition to what Jesus is doing and saying in his public ministry. And this, these three descriptions, uh, three categories of response to this miracle begin to show us this. Jesus responds to this first and foremost uh, by invoking uh, a principle that reveals the depth and understanding of how this world works. Now, that should come as no surprise for those of you that have been around uh, the Bible for a while. We know that the scriptures testify to the fact that Jesus was present at the creation of the world. And so the fact that with his Father and with the Spirit, he understands how this world works and made because he's responsible for it. Um, Paul writes that, for by him all things were made. Uh, so he understands it. He understands that there are certain principles that govern this world. And I'm not talking about the scientific principle, something like gravity, but I'm talking about other principles which would rule what we call the moral universe. God has certain desires for this world, and so he designed it to move in a certain direction. And Jesus understands that there are certain principles that, apart from person, place, setting, or time, they're truth. And that one can either leverage those principles and live according to them. You can either move in that direction, or you're going to be fighting against them. The principle he invokes here is really simple. I'm just going to call it the house divided cannot stand principle. Uh, it's one that's famous because Abraham Lincoln once used it in a speech. Uh, Sam Houston also did so one time, not to Texas history there. This simple response is what I would call the logic response to this first complaint about Jesus somehow doing this by a power other than the God's hand. And this is what Jesus says, in essence. Uh, when he writes, uh, or when Luke writes, um, about this, he invokes this principle of the divided house. He's essentially saying that if Jesus had cast this demon out by Beelzebul, or the father of demons, or the Satan, our adversary, he's saying that doesn't even make sense. It doesn't make what one social media personality would call bad sense. It doesn't even make bad sense to say that Satan would somehow be working against himself to do this. And Jesus goes on to describe when he talks about uh, your own sons. Uh, if I do this as a Jewish rabbi, then your own sons, meaning uh, as he's talking to a crowd of Jews, many of whom would be rabbis and have sons who are aiming to do the same, he said, then your sons do that also. They will be your judges also. He said, none of that argument makes sense. His first response is simply to respond with logic um, to what has been thrown at him and what these people are thinking. But where I really want to major in this first section is what Jesus then moves to in terms of shifting from the logic response and these if-then statements, because he wraps that up with a simple if-then statement. He says, um, if then I do this by the finger of God, then the kingdom has, of God has come upon you. He's reminding them, guys, here's my source of authority. It comes from the Father. And so very simply, he's using logic in these if-then statements to say, here's the real power. But now he's going to shift to narrative, to story, in a sense, almost telling these little parables, two little parables, uh, to help the people understand 
what else is happening in this scene. And Thomas read for us, and we pick it up in verse 21. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. Jesus is casting Satan here as the strong man in this little parable. Now, it does not say this in the text. It does not say this, what I'm about to say. But it's easy for me to imagine, as Jesus has just healed this man, delivered him of this demon, that possibly Jesus could even gesture to this man who he's just freed and almost used him as an illustration for each of these two little narratives. Because when he says, uh, a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed, there was a time that this man who was mute, um, in a sense, that was Satan having ownership of that man's house and his possessions were undisturbed. Satan had full control over him. The man was mute. He could not speak. Then Jesus casts himself as the stronger man. And he says, when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all the armor on which he had relied. Simple example here. Jesus had or Satan had relied on his demons to make this man mute, a form of his armor, his weaponry. Jesus says, I took that away from him. And the beautiful part of this verse, he says, is uh, once that happens, the stronger man can distribute his plunder. It's interesting that the stronger man that Jesus describes in this story does not say, hey, the stronger man goes into the house, takes what he wants, and he's got it for himself. It's so important to realize that Jesus says the stronger man comes in, overtakes the strong man, gets rid of him, and he distributes the plunder. In a sense, we have a picture of freeing someone's gifts, someone's talents, someone's experiences, someone's calling. And you go back to the one-sentence summary of this miracle. After Jesus cast that demon out, we're told that the man spoke. Now, we don't know what he said. But the fact that he spoke is reference to this idea that, that Jesus distributes, he shares, he's giver um, as he frees this man. Then Jesus says in verse 23, uh, what I believe is the hinge point to this entire passage, one of the most significant things that he says. Very simply, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus makes it incredibly plain that there is no such thing as neutral with him. You're either for him or against him. You're either moving with him in his direction or you are moving against his direction. There is no such thing as neutral. You're either gathering with him or scattering. You cannot just stand still in this world and think, I'm just not going to make a decision. That in itself is a decision against Jesus. Everything else we're going to look at in this passage will either echo or amplify that statement. And the, the very next element of this narrative, this little parable, does the same thing. Jesus goes on in verse 24. He says, When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Again, sort of a little mini parable. It does not indicate in the text that Jesus is pointing to the guy 
He's just freed um, from this demon. But it's easy for me to imagine perhaps Jesus gesturing to him and helping us understand something not only about this man's life, but also about the nature of um, not just the fact that there are two directions in this world, either with Jesus, for Jesus, or against Jesus. There's also two dimensions to these directions. There's an outer, physical, exterior dimension to our lives, and an inner, you can call it spirit, soul, heart, mind, values, attitudes, everything that happens on the interior side of our life. Two directions in a big way, but two dimensions to those directions, what we see on the outside and what's happening on the inside. And Jesus says, uh, picture a spirit passing through a waterless place, an unclean spirit going out to a waterless place. Now, could you imagine people living in a hot, dry climate where there's not much water? Probably not a good question to ask this morning on our... Uh, let, me, let me walk back and check that. Um, go back a few thousand years before AC, even if it just runs at 80 or 82. It's better than nothing. Uh, the point that Jesus is making is not that unclean spirits need water. What he's saying when he says, picture this unclean spirit passing through a waterless place and it can't find rest. Not because it needs water, but because people would not live in a waterless place. We can't survive in a waterless place. And so the unclean spirit goes out seeking a home, a place to rest, goes through waterless places. There are no people there. And so it goes, where am I going to land? Where am I going to go? To me, that's a, a tremendously uh, frightening insight about the nature of the, the other side of our world, the unseen side of our world. That there is, um, so easy for us to forget in our daily life where we live so much according to our five senses, we can, and we've been designed to do that, uh, but there is a supernatural, a side that goes above and beyond the natural world, a spiritual side. And that there are unclean spirits seeking a place to live. It says, I'm going to go back to the home I knew. And it finds it swept and put in order. Uh, put in order uh, is the Greek word cosmeo. It's where we get our word cosmetics from. This idea that outwardly uh, things are adorned and looking good. They're made up to look good, better than they might otherwise be. Matthew, when he describes Jesus saying this statement, he adds one other word to this description. He says, the house is unoccupied. It's swept, it's put in order, it's also unoccupied, it's empty. And thus, the Spirit says um, to seven other spirits, hey, look, come on, let's go, and we've got a place to live. It's as though Jesus is, again, almost like gesturing to this guy and saying, hey, he's been freed. But, again, there is no neutral. You can't be freed from something and just expect to float through life. Because, again, if we use the analogy of a house, that house is going to get filled and furnished with something. It's going to get filled and furnished with something. And what Jesus then goes into is important words about how we fill and furnish our home, the interior of our life. And he does this by taking advantage of a shouted blessing from a woman in the crowd. Uh, Thomas read it beautifully a few moments ago. While Jesus was saying these things, 
one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Now, kind words from this woman in the crowd to bless Mary. And she was paying Jesus a compliment and paying Mary a great compliment. But he redirects that and moves very quickly to what matters most. And he says an incredibly powerful thing that more than any family relationship, what is gonna define every human being in this world is their response to God's word. He's already said a similar thing. You go back to Luke 8, uh, a moment when crowds were pressing in around Jesus. His family was trying to get to him. And somebody says to him, hey, your, your mother and brothers wanna see you. And you can see it up on the screen. And he says, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Again, Think about the degree to which our family relationships define and inform and shape who we are. It's powerful, the degree to which family shapes and defines and informs who we are. And Jesus levels up above that and he says, there's actually something more important. And it's how every human being responds to the word of God. Do they hear it? Do they listen to it and observe it or keep it? back to this section of Luke. It's interesting, too, that Luke chooses to use the word observe. Uh, very significant here, because the, that word, is, is Luke chose to use it in the Greek, has two layers of meaning to it. And again, we see this again and again. We've got two directions. There's the direction that God desires and designs for this world. We can either be moving with it or against it. There's two dimensions, the inner and the outer. And now Luke chooses a word when he says, uh, those who hear the word and observe it or keep it. One side of that word in the original Greek language talks about observing in the sense of caring for something that is of great value. You recognize the value, you're gonna care for it, you're gonna protect it. The other side is the ability to recognize something that puts you at risk. And when you recognize that thing, when you observe it, and it, bless you, and it puts you at risk, uh, you shun it, you flee from it, you avoid it, you stay away from it. And so there's two layers to this word observe, both recognizing that which can ruin our lives and that which is a key source of life. And it's interesting then because uh, what Jesus does next is one of those parts of this passage that made me want to speak next week or the two weeks later, um, where he writes about, uh, Jesus talks about these signs. I'm going to pick it up in verse 29. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so the Son of Man will be to this generation." The queen of the south will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. When I first read this, I, I, again, I will confess, I was going, wait, what? sign of Jonah and queen of the south and the Ninevites standing up at the judgment. What is he aiming at? And it comes back to this word observe. And the nuance, I believe, of these two sides of what it means to truly listen and hear God's word. 
Jesus says, uh, just as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, he would be, the son of man would be to this generation. There are some commentators, you can find some way out there commentators, that would say that maybe Jesus was sort of cryptically referring to his resurrection. You know, Jonah was three days in the belly of a great fish, and then he was spit out, and Jesus would be three days in the tomb, and somehow this would be a sign. The problem with that is we don't have any record in the book of Jonah that the Ninevites knew anything about what happened to Jonah. There's no record of that. Some people have gone off on these, these um, I would call them a flight of fancy, saying, well, maybe when Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, the... Uh, you know, he's stewing in the juices down there, and it bleached his skin really, really light. And so that when he showed up to speak to the Ninevites, he looked so strange. They said, what happened? He said, well, it was in the fish. And the... We have no record of that whatsoever. We have a record of one thing that Jonah did. He went into that great city, and he preached repentance. He preached the side of observe that said, guys, you're all engaged in something that's putting you at risk. There is a God who has a desire for your life, who has a design for how this world is going to work, there's a better direction to be living, and I'm calling you to repentance, to shuva in the Hebrew, to turn and to go a different way. And they listened to him. That's the only thing that Jonah had, was preaching. So I believe what Jesus is simply saying is when he says the Son of Man shall be assigned to this, he's speaking to this generation, and he speaks still today, 2,000 plus years later. That's the sign of Jonah. He preached. Jesus is preaching too. And when Jesus speaks about these two groups that are going to stand up at the judgment, the queen of the south, that's a reference to 1 Kings 10. I'm not going to take time to go back and read that story if you want to note that somewhere in your notes. 1 Kings 10 writes about the queen of the south. In some translations of the Bible, the queen of Sheba. Uh, so southeast Arabia was where that would, would have been, uh, modern-day Yemen probably. This woman, this queen, who was incredibly wealthy, heard about this king called Solomon. Heard about this guy living up in a different area who had incredible wealth. But more than that, she heard about his wisdom, God-given wisdom. And she recognized something of great value. And so she traveled. You can go back and read about it in 1 Kings to meet with, with Solomon, observe him in action, and see what he did and how he rolled as a king. Jesus is saying... The queen of the south will stand up at the judgment because on the one side of the word observed, she recognized something of great value, God-given wisdom that guides and protects our life. And he says, something greater than that is here. And then on the other side, he speaks about the men of, the, of Nineveh standing up at the judgment. Uh, the men of Nineveh stand up at the judgment and they're able to say something greater than Jonah. Those men... Were, one who, were men who listened. And again, to the other side of that word observe I mentioned a few moments ago, they realized as they listened to the preaching of Jonah, there's something over here we need to turn from. We need to shun it. We need to flee from it. We need to move away from it. It is uh, putting our lives at risk. So again, these two sides of what it means to listen, to move toward the good that God has for us in a way from the things that put our life at risk. It's interesting then, uh, as Jesus is speaking again about two directions, he's then going to return in this next section to this layer of, of nuance again about the interior and exterior. And this again is a, a section of 
in this passage that, uh, I'll just say it openly and honestly, it threw me for a loop when I first looked at it. He says, I'm going to pick it up in verse 33, uh, no one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar, nor under a basket, but on the lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body is also, also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. Now the opening line of this section is fairly easy to grasp, I think, uh, when he says, no one lights a lamp and puts it in the cellar or under a basket. It's so easy to grasp that I think it's easy to miss, at least it was easy for me to miss, the emphasis on relationship that's present in verse 33. The whole point of lighting a lamp and putting it up on a lampstand is that people enter in. There's an emphasis on relationship. And whether it's family or friends or guests who are in need of hospitality in that moment, uh, the whole point of lighting a lamp and setting it up to illuminate a room is about relationship. Very, very powerful piece of what Jesus is getting at. And then you go to the next part. And this is where I started going, wait, the eye is clear, the eye is bad. What, what is he aiming at? To understand this, we're going to take a very quick trip through a few other passages, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I want to help you understand uh, this important concept about um, the Hebrew way of thinking about the eye. Um, you can go back to Matthew 20, verse 15, and these are tiny as you can see up on the screen. Matthew 20, uh, Jesus tells the parable of a, uh, the owner of a vineyard who goes out and hires people throughout the day to work in his vineyard, promises the early hirees, uh, a denarius to work all day. At the end of the day, Jesus is paying all of his workers and he begins paying the ones who just worked an hour or so. He pays them first and he pays them a denarius. And when the other guys who've worked all day long see that the last guy's got a denarius, they all start thinking the same thing. We're going to be rolling in it. We were supposed to just work for a denarius. He's paying them a denarius. We're going to get probably like eight, ten, who knows what they were thinking. And they get paid a denarius. And they are ticked off and they're grumbling. And at the end of that parable, uh, Jesus says, um, as he's voicing the owner, uh, the vineyard owner, he says, is, as he's speaking to these grumbling employees, is your eye envious because I'm generous? Is your eye envious because I'm generous? You go back to Deuteronomy 15. And uh, this is at the end of a passage that's writing about how to deal with the poor people in the land that God has given you, your poor brothers. And uh, it says, beware there is no base thought in your heart, saying the seventh year, the year of remission is near. The seventh year was a year in which all deaths would be erased among the people that lived together. And here's the idea. The seventh year, the year of remission is near. Um, beware, we're being told about a potential for a temptation to hit us. And it's that our eye would be hostile. Beware that your eye would not be hostile towards your poor brother and you give him nothing. So in other words, if it's the first year in the seven-year cycle and I see that Kevin is in need, it's probably going to be pretty easy to lend him something to help him in his time of need. But if it's, let's say, the sixth year and the eighth month, just four months to go, 
saying, hey, beware, you're gonna be tempted because if you see your brother in need, the temptation is gonna be there to go, well, there's only four months for him to pay me back. <laughs> what if he doesn't do it? Then I'm out whatever I loan him. Don't let your eye be hostile towards your brother. And it flips the other way too, as you can see in Proverbs 22, nine. Now, our Pew Bible, the New American Standard, simply says, he who is generous will be blessed for he gives some of his food to the poor. That word generous in the original Hebrew is tovayin, a good eye. He who has a good eye will be blessed. So you go, wait, how can your eye be hostile or envious or good or bad or clear? Um, the word ayin in the Hebrew or the Greek word that Luke uses in our text, ophthalmos, where we get our word ophthalmology from, and things like that, it could refer to a physical eye, but there's certainly another thing going on. And we're not just talking about a physical eye. We're talking, in a sense, in English, probably the best thing would be to talk about our mind's eye. The ability mentally, spiritually, our inner faculty or sense of knowing or ability to perceive. Jesus says that could be good or it could be bad. Other biblical writers would say you could have a mental, spiritual, interior way of seeing the world that is hostile or envious um, this passage alone, these few verses alone are worth spending time in because they get down to some of the deepest elements of how we view the world and God. Do we see the world as a place of scarcity where uh, I need to protect what's mine and I live with a closed fist because there's limits on what's there? And I'm not talking about finite natural resources. I'm talking about things like love and beauty and truth. Do I see it as something that's limited or do I view this world as a world of abundance? Do I see the God behind it as one who has infinite understanding, as the psalmist said, who can help things grow and continue to move forward so that I can live with an open hand? There are deep elements of worldview in this little phrase about whether or not your eye is good or your eye is bad. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. I like how John Piper sums this up. He says, the good eye sees the treasure as God and his ways, not money. And again, there's all these layers of relationship woven into this, our relationship and view of God, as well as how that impacts relationship with other man, what's inside and how it affects what comes out on the ex exterior, the outside. As we look back to Luke and we look at the last couple verses in this section, I just want to point out two other things. Verse 34 I'm sorry, 35, when Jesus says, then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. I think what he's saying to us is reminding us that in many respects as human beings, we are very good at fooling ourselves. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? Uh, we're told elsewhere in the scriptures, uh, we can be very good at, uh, I can look at the speck in your eye while I ignore the log in my own eye. In many different ways, the scriptures would say to us that it's easy for us to fool ourselves. And I think this is another one where Jesus is warning us, then watch out that the light in you, what you think is light, is not actually darkness. And then he reminds us of something so important in the last piece of this section, verse 36. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined. That's awesome. That is worth celebrating. If you cultivate and grow that good eye, 
and your whole body is full of light, you're going to live a different way. And that's an awesome and good thing. But I think in that final phrase, when Jesus says, as when the lamp illumines you with its rays, he's reminding us of something so important. And it's that we cannot generate that light on our own. We cannot grow that light on our own. We wouldn't know what light was unless we had first seen it outside of us. We wouldn't know the value of light if the light had not first shone on us. And for the man who, as we know in John 12, 8, called himself the light of the world. Jesus was teaching that day, as John records it, in, in one of the temple courts during the, the, feast, the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Dedication, where he was teaching at that time. And one of the, the elements of that particular feast would have been these huge lampstands, four big lampstands, each with four huge bowls of oil lit. Incredible amount of light for that day and age. That was the context which Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And I think he's reminding us once again, uh, light is a theme we see all the way, go right to the beginning of, of the whole story in Genesis, when God separates light from darkness. He calls light into being. Uh, such a significant piece here that Jesus says, uh, when the lamp illumines you with its light, a very subtle reminder that he's the source of that. And it begins with him reaching out to us. And this is powerful because of what we're going to move to in the last portion of this. Because we've been talking about two directions. We've been talking about two dimensions and how that inner and outer life matches up and impact each other. For what happens next, as we pick the story up in verse 37, it says, Now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. And he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within you as charity, and then all things are clean for you. I love the fact that Jesus... Um, sees the value with this Pharisee of, of sharing a meal together. This is one of, I think, six different meal scenes that Luke records and reminds us of the, the value of, of time spent around the table. And so it's interesting to me, hey, yeah, let's do lunch together. But very quickly, they come to a place where uh, there's this clash of worldviews or clash of, of ways of seeing things because uh, Jesus does not go through the ceremonial washing. And the Pharisee, as Luke records, is surprised at that. It's interesting to me, uh, that word surprised, it's the same word in Greek that Luke uses way back at the beginning of the passage uh, for the response of one section of the crowd to the miracle. When people were amazed, they're surprised at what happened. That's the same degree of shock and surprise the Pharisee had to see, Jesus, you didn't, you didn't wash up. Now, we don't have a record that anything was said. There might have been something said. But Jesus simply responds to that. And again, speaks to these two dimensions, inner and outer. But I think what's so significant is uh, verse 41, when Jesus says, give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. Give that which is within as charity. Speaking first about you have got to give your heart first as the gift. That is the source of it all. Everything else then is going to be clean. You can't be focused 
on the outside. Uh, there is a truth, as one commentator said it, um, reformation without regeneration. You can't have that. Reformation, meaning reforming behavior on the outside, without regeneration, without growth, new growth on the inside, you can't have it. It is not sustainable to do that. It's not sustainable to simply focus on the outward behavior without ever shaping the inner thoughts, values, and attitudes of heart and mind. And this is important to recognize because of what Jesus now does. He's going to lay out three sets, I'm sorry, two sets of three woes each. A woe, W-O-E, a woe is an expression of God's judgment toward an action that deserves a response. And as we pick it up in verse 42, Jesus speaks first to the Pharisees. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. Now, time's not going to allow me to go into each one of these uh, woes separately. I just want you to see for this first set of three a couple of things. That by and large, they deal again with this two-layered element of the interior and the exterior. The tithing of the mint, the rue, the garden herbs, that tithing uh, is an external uh, expression of something. Uh, neglecting the love and justice of God, though that has an external expression, it begins with an interior dimension. Do I really value and love God's love and justice? So there's a contrast of interior and exterior. When he writes about, you love the chief seats in the synagogue and the public greetings in the marketplace, that's an exterior element. But then Jesus says, you guys are like concealed tombs. You, we know what a tomb is. It has a dead body in it. And if you go back to uh, Numbers 19, verse 16, there's a, a statement in that book, a commandment really that says, anyone who touches a grave is unclean. And it goes on to describe what they have to do. Uh, they're unclean, considered unclean for a week. And so in Jewish law and thinking, boy, if you touch a grave, uh, you are unclean ritually. You can't be around anybody. Part of that was, a, like many of God's uh, commandments in Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, there's a, a public health element to them. They took that very seriously, but it meant segregation from everybody if you happen to touch a grave. As such, a um, very common practice in ancient Israel was to whitewash the tombs so that they were very clear as to where they were. So for Jesus to say to these Pharisees, you're like concealed tombs that people would just walk over without realizing it, and now they've been made ritually unclean. It's hard to describe in our day and age just how insulting this would have been to a group who valued ritual purity as highly as the Pharisees did. And not because Jesus was aiming to insult, he was speaking truth to them. But again, it's this contrast between the exterior. You guys love it when you're sitting up front in the synagogues, you get the uh, great greetings in the public marketplace. But behind that, on the inside, you're dead. 
And it's no surprise then of what we see next. And in uh, verse 45, we're told that one of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. Now, the lawyer uh, would be a teacher of the law. Some Bible translations would say an expert in the law or a teacher in the law. Uh, some would use the word scribe. These are people, some of them would have been Pharisees. Some would have been separate from the Pharisees and would not have belonged to that party, so to speak. They are people who are responsible for caring for copying God's word, and they knew it extremely well. Now, I had some fun thinking about how was this actually said? Teacher. When you say this, you insult us too. It's easy for me to imagine, for example, maybe this lawyer was sort of coming alongside Jesus and giving him some advice. Hey, teacher, when you say this stuff, you insult us too. You might want to tone it down a little bit, repackage the message, make it a little bit easier for us to take. I could see it being very forceful, very intense. Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. Kind of fighting words. Uh, we don't typically think of Pharisees and scribes as a fun-loving bunch of people. Uh, but could it be that maybe this was said with a touch of sarcasm or kind of a light touch? Because what was supposed to be a, a lunch uh, now had some significant tension in it. So maybe it was, a teacher, when you say these things, you're, you're kind of insulting all of us. You're insulting us too. And so maybe it's to try and break the tension. I don't know. But as I thought about that and played with that a little bit, how was this actually said? I realized something. It really, no matter which one of those versions you might take, if you think of it almost like a script and the director's notes and the margin about how he wanted it said, underneath any one of those, there is an arrogance to this statement. You insult us too. Basically saying, Jesus, you're out of line. You either don't know what you're talking about or you shouldn't be saying this. You're out of line in some way. And they're now calling Jesus on that. The response of Jesus is now to turn his attention to the lawyers with three more woes. And very quickly, I'm just going to read these and, and talk more about the, the middle one. The first and the last are a little bit easier to understand. He said, Woe to you lawyers as well. You weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. That's pretty self-explanatory. You're laying burdens down, you won't even lift a finger to help. I think almost anybody alive could see there's a problem with that. If you jump down to verse 52, the last of them, I'm just going to skip ahead to this one real quick. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. Again, pretty easy to grasp and understand that they're keeping people from knowledge. It's the second one that I think is a little bit more of a challenge. I'm going to go back up to verse 48. Or I'm sorry, verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who is killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Whew, that's a lot. And it's intense. And it can also go, okay, what's he saying there, though? And I think it comes back to a theme we've already seen. And it's that of listening and the contrast between 
exterior and interior. Jesus says, my issue with you guys is that you have built tombs for these prophets. Why do people build a tomb? It's because they want to honor the deceased. And so it's an exterior action. They built these tombs for the prophets as though they're saying, hey, we want to honor the prophets. And yet the reality, Jesus says, is uh, it was your forefathers who killed them. They didn't listen to them. And you're, in a sense, approving of your father's actions. You haven't listened to them. And there's this failure again to do two things, either observe that which is good and life-giving and guard it and protect it, or to observe that which puts your life at risk and shun it and flee from it, you guys haven't done either one. Instead, you make it look like you're honoring those prophets when the reality is you've completely ignored them. We have no record of any of the Pharisees or lawyers responding positively to the words that Jesus said. Rather, um, verse 53, it says, when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Uh, Luke is offering us some foreshadowing of what is to come. Uh, he uses the language he uses in verse 54 there is the language of hunting, talking about working to trap your prey in something. And so we get the picture of what's beginning to form, uh, as I said at the outset, as he's sharing that the tide of public opinion is starting to turn against Jesus. When I think about what all this means for us, uh, this, I found this, uh, I have no problem with sermons that go, hey, here's the text, and now here's three points of application, A, B, C, let's go. Uh, I found this difficult to wrap up and say, here's some specific points of application. To me, it's, it's almost more, again, about this, Nate, this sense of alignment, as I said at the beginning. In the same way, and it's a simplistic example, in the same way this room has been set up with a focal point to honor a desire of what this space was about, and it's, there's a direction to it, um, there's almost this sense of leveling up and thinking about how are we aligning with some very big picture ideas about who God is, who Jesus is, how this world works. So I think first and foremost, by way of summary, uh, just to remind you, there is no such thing as being neutral with Jesus. Uh, we can either align our life with him or we move in the opposite direction to him or from him. Simply put. Now, I think saying that, and when we think about the way Jesus said it in this chapter, these words can seem uh, either or sound confrontational. Some of this sounded confrontational almost in the way Jesus delivered these things. Uh, it might sound very narrow to our modern ears. If you think about it, we live in a day and age, and I would also say not unique to us in this day and age, but it's unique for us because we're dealing with it right now. And it's the reality that alive and well in our world today is the thinking that, uh, hey, you can just make your own truth. You can have your personal truth. And what's truth for, for Dan and Ruthie, well, cool, that's great that it's for Dan and Ruthie, but my truth is different than theirs. Or if you find people, I mean, plenty of people, as we know, would say, I'm atheist or I'm agnostic. There, there is no God, or if there is a God, you can't know him. Even if people would believe in some kind of a God or higher power or divine, um, many people would say, well, we just take different paths. 
And so you guys can take the Jesus path up sort of the top of the mountain, but I'm, I'm going to walk over here on my path. And the Muslims, they can walk their path. And the Hindus, they can walk their path. We'll all end up at the top of the mountain. There's all these different ideas. And so when Jesus says, essentially, it's my way or the highway, it can sound incredibly narrow. And I would suggest to you that this is actually an invitation to the truest form of peace, the only true form of peace available to man. And the reason I'd say that to you is because I've never met anyone who thinks hypocrisy, hypocrisy is attractive. Think about that for a second. Have you ever heard a human being go, she is so hypocritical, and I'm so impressed by that. <laughs> Little kids can sniff it out. I work in a middle school. Middle school kids have a strong sense of radar for hypocrisy in what adults do. And it just gets better and better from there. I've never met anyone who thinks hypocrisy is attractive. And I love the fact, in one sense, that if we could somehow survey everybody alive today in the world and say, do you think hypocrisy is cool, good, attractive? I love the fact that probably uh, some seven billion people, without realizing it, they're in full agreement with Jesus on something because he hates it too. He thinks it stinks. And all these people out there in the world would agree with something Jesus says. Hypocrisy is awful. And Jesus invites us into a relationship where there is no need for it. He invites us into a relationship where there is no need to put the house in order before you meet him. No need to do any of that cosmetic work to appear a certain way because you are loved just as you are. You are accepted just as you are. And the whole idea of hypocrisy is, I gotta make myself look a certain way to be accepted. And Jesus cuts right through that in this chapter. It sounds so confrontational, so intense, so narrow, and the reality is it's quite beautiful underneath it all. Because he says, you don't need to worry about any of that. You don't think you're good enough? Neither am I. And Jesus loves me and accepts me. You don't want to be seen as one of those hypocritical Christians? Um, Jesus doesn't want that either. And he cuts right through it. And if, you, if you're at a place where you've kind of wondered about, I don't want to be one of those people. I'd love to talk to you more about this if you've never made a decision about who Jesus is or if it's always seemed off-putting to you, this sort, because he's inviting you to a true peace relationship, one in which the exterior and the interior are fully aligned with what God desires for this world, his design for this world, his direction for this world. It's what the Hebrew people would call truest shalom, the sense of peace is the Hebrew translation. Uh, but that word is so much more than just the absence of conflict. It talks about the deepest connections and integration of what I say and what I believe, what I do and what I value, what I think and how that gets expressed. That is true peace. That is what Jesus calls us to in this passage. I think the intensities we see in this passage in some elements, it's because he is so passionate about people.
And finally, uh, just remind us about the importance of listening. One of the things that Jesus is after in this is to say, listen. Not just in the sense of, did you hear something, but did you truly take it in and listen to it? Because listening is about moving to an obedience to God's design and direction. And it grows from within us. And then secondly, following right from that, is the reality that that obedience and that listening is all about relationship. Our relationship with God as well as other people. Um, this whole passage that we read uh, is so full of relationship. If you work back through it, you realize uh, part of what Jesus was frustrated about with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees is the lack of relationship. The, the teachers of the law hindering people from entering into knowledge, uh, putting burdens and not lifting them, ignoring that relationship. The Pharisees focusing only on each other with the greetings and things like that, ignoring love and justice and reaching out beyond other people. You think about the kind of relationship God or Jesus describes here um, between the queen of the south and Solomon, a temporary temporal relationship, but one of such value. The Ninevites and Jonah, there's relationship there that caused them to turn. Relationship is all over the idea of the lamp, the eye being the lamp of the body. It's how we view our relationship to God and how that gets expressed with others. You go all the way back to the beginning of the passage it begins with a relationship between Jesus and a man who was mute and Jesus reaching into his life to free him of that unclean spirit. Relationship is all over this passage. And that's the point of our obedience is to be able to speak as that man was able to speak. We don't know what he said. There's a part that I hope and trust he was able to go on and speak the praises of the God who released him, the truth, the joy, the love, the beauty, and the things that I think he experienced that day. Uh, may it be the same for us.